Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm talking to a guy who's been called the happiest man in the world. Mike Viking is a two-time international best-selling author. He wrote The Little Book of Huga and The Little Book of Lika. As you might have already guessed, he's Danish. He also founded the world's first happiness research institute in 2013, and he's the research associate for the World Database of Happiness. We talk a lot about happiness. It's something we're all after, unless you're the rare cherophobe. That's a real term for those afraid of happiness. But what does it mean? How do we control for such a thing? Well, Mike argues it has a lot to do with memory, and his latest book goes into that. It's called The Art of Making Memories, How to Create and Remember Happy Moments. Here's his story. Well, Mike, for someone who has spent so much time writing and researching and talking about happiness and memories, I'm hoping that we might be able to start with a story. What is your earliest happy memory? Oh, I think I would be about four or five years old, probably summertime, June, standing in front of a huge bonfire uh, out by the uh, the cabin where I used to spend my, my childhood summers and sort of feeling the, the heat from the, the fire and having my, my parents uh, at my back. I think that was sort of the that's the earliest I can uh, I can remember I must have been happiness. Here I'm going to reveal my uh, my non-Denmark uh, knowledge. But how do you pronounce your your hometown is is Hederslev? Hederslev? How how should I pronounce it? <laughs> it's pronounced Hederslev. Hederslev. Um, but but we lived there in in the I mean the majority of the year. But in the summer period, which is about three days in Denmark. <laughs> uh, we, no, three months. We uh, we, uh, we we spent um, at our summer cabin, which was just uh, twenty kilometers outside Hurslev, in a tiny place called Heisea. So you are completely excused if you're not able to pronounce those. It, this is all this is all payback, by the way. I spent third grade learning uh, or trying to learn how to pronounce uh, the th sound, which we don't have in Danish. Oh yes. And also, also that's it. I mean, I mean, uh, English also gets me in trouble from time to time. I've, I've noticed when I speak English instead of Danish, I need to concentrate more. So I get this really grumpy look on my face, and uh, it's it's not good when you're a happiness researcher to have a grumpy look on your face. <laughs> <laughs> How does a guy from from small town Denmark? I mean, twenty thousand people, right, uh, or thereabouts? Yeah. How, how do you become interested in happiness? Oh, I think, I mean, I think I've always been interested in people and understanding why we do what we do. And I've been interested in, in many different aspects of sort of sociology, you know, I've uh, been interested in, in, in social interactions, behavioral economics, uh, politics, urban design, and I actually struggle with with picking what would be the equivalent to, to a major in, in, in at the uni in, in, in Denmark. And I think with, with happiness research, I found something that could satisfy the different um, fields um, I'm interested in. But roughly 10 years ago, I was working for um, a think tank in Copenhagen uh, focusing on sustainability. Mm-hmm. And I was heading that uh, division 
in uh, yeah, I was there for about seven years and started to notice how much was happening globally with happiness research and happiness and politics. You had you know different governments; they were starting to measure well-being, happiness as a new measure of progress. And the World Happiness Report came out, and Denmark was in the top place. And I just started to think, oh, there's a lot happening with happiness research and politics, and there should be somebody in Denmark trying to look into these things. There should be somebody trying to understand why does Denmark often do well in these happiness rankings? And then I just thought, maybe I should do that. Hmm. Um, So I, I don't think it was until then that I was or became interested in happiness, but I was interested in the in the field surrounding happiness and, and, and driving happiness. You mentioned there looking at trying to find a major for university and, and being a little bit uncertain at the time. If you were to go farther back, what did you think you would be when you were a kid when you grew up? Uh, I wanted to be Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of us did back then. It was either that or, you know, a fighter pilot, because those were the big movies at the time. It was Top Gun and Indiana Jones. Uh, um, so, no, I, 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 I struggled with a lot of, in, in many years, figuring mm-hmm. out what I wanted to do. Um, I had a lot of different things, um, you know, uh, doctor, lawyer, uh, stock trader, uh, archaeologist, um, um, so, so I thought picking my major was was really tricky, uh, and I also skipped around um, and 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 actually studied a lot of different things in the end. Um, so, so fortunately, I found happiness research because that is something I can I can use to 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 sort of satisfy the different interests I have academically. So, with happiness research and data and studies in in happiness we can start to ask questions like how have the perception of happiness developed over time? So there's a historic component. We can start to question, you know, how should we design or redesign our cities differently? So there's an urban design sort of perspective to it. We can start to ask questions, how should our policies look differently if we are interested in improving quality of life? So there's also the, the, the political aspect um, so, so that's why I enjoy working with happiness research. You can look at it from so many different angles. That's something you mentioned there. I, I hadn't really considered before this idea of our concept of happiness changing over time. If we're talking about eras and you know centuries, yeah. Uh, just how right. recent is our our current understanding of of happiness and the priority we place on it? Mm, um, I think the current. I think with the current perception of happiness, we can reach back a couple of thousand years, actually. Um, So if you take Aristotle's perception of happiness, he said that the good life is the meaningful life. So do we have a sense of purpose in life? Mm -hmm. I think some of us will still see that as a component in happiness or uh, the good life that we find meaning in what we do, that we feel that what we live for is worthwhile. Um, so, so, so I think there are threats that go way back. That said, I, that there are changes over those you know, 2,000 years. Earlier, uh, we might have been more inclined to saying that 
the gods were the ones that decided who would be happy or not. Mm -hmm. And nowadays we have a stronger perception that it's up to ourselves to create our own happiness. Mm. And also, to some extent, I think happiness have been a little bit hijacked by a lot of companies uh, that are using explicitly or implicitly uh, happiness in the promise they made uh, or the promises they make in, in, in advertising. Right. Um, so, so, so there's a shift in who we think are responsible for happiness and how we can become happy. Uh, but there are things, I think there's also some things that are consistent over time. Hmm. Yeah, I suppose Aristotle wasn't dealing with the the wonders of modern marketing <laughs> campaigns and uh, no, and exactly. all of that. Yeah. So so you're growing up and uh, and you want to be Indiana Jones or you want to be a, a fighter pilot. Uh, how did that go over with your parents? Like, were there any expectations from your folks about what you might do? Um. No, I think I I, I think I've been very fortunate with with my parents and they have always been really supportive in whatever I wanted to do. I think my my, especially my my dad has always said that you should not care about the money or the salary. You should you should find something you love to do because you're going to spend so many hours working. It's important that that you enjoy it. And that should be the the primary thing. Hmm. Um, And I think my, my parents have always been sort of quite certain that you know I would find something to do I, I was fortunate enough to do quite well in school so they have not been worried in in that sense uh, and they've been they've been really supportive in in my different uh, crazy endeavors also uh, such an idea of starting something as crazy as a happiness research institute that's good advice from from your dad I like that uh, yeah as you're exploring and, and testing out different things that might fit until you arrive at a happiness research, what were some of the, if you were, you know, uh, working jobs in high school or, or trying different things out, like what was, uh, what was your most memorable, if you will, uh, teenage job or, or early adulthood job? Oh, several ones. I mean, I think that the I can talk about the best and the worst. So I think that the, the best teenage job I had was working at the local cinema. Mm. Um, so this was back in the day where you had these sort of, you know, long, uh, you know, two kilometers long films rolled up on, on these film rolls. And you had to sort of, you know, put them in the the, the movie projector uh, that that was really fun it was a good group uh, i'm still friends with a lot of those people i worked with back then and now you know 25 20 years ago um my first perhaps real sort of academic job was the ministry of foreign affairs in mm-hmm. in denmark uh where uh, <laughs> uh i i usually tell the story when i have new employees of how bad a first week on the job can go um, because on my third day, it must have been my third day at the office, I, I show up and, of course, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is this really, you know, beautifully designed building in Copenhagen with, you know, art on the walls mm-hmm. and Danish design icons in terms of classic furniture and lovely carpets and, and everything. And I, I meet one of the other people working at the office and, and we chat for a few minutes and he's a nice guy and... Uh, after a while, he says, um, I'm sorry, but I think you might have stepped in something. 
And I looked down, and indeed I had um, a, a, a giant dog turd, uh, which had sort of <laughs> taken a choke hold around my uh, my shoe. And I had not only put marks on the carpet in the office, but sort of eighty or hundred meters down the hallway. Um, so that was my that was my third day uh, at the office. So that was a glorious start. Um, and I usually tell that story to to my when we, when we get new employees because I want them to know that you know whatever they do the first week in terms of making mistakes I've done worse. Yeah. So so you managed to recover from that. You don't you don't just quit on the spot. No, <laughs> I stayed there for uh, the, the the long period of ten months. <laughs> uh, yeah. You mentioned already how it might be unexpected to start. Uh, a happiness research institute. You founded the world's first happiness research institute uh, seven years right. ago now. What made you say the world needs this? Oh, so uh, the, there was the academic interest, uh, which we talked about earlier. I said, you know, this is a tremendously interesting field. Um, I was lying awake at night in a good way, thinking about the different projects the different sort of areas to explore that I thought would be tremendously interesting. Um, and then I think that the, the final push was uh, what happened to a, to a, a, a colleague of mine. Um, uh, so at the time, as I mentioned, I, w- I was working for another think tank in Copenhagen and it was a sort of well-paid, stable job. And this was sort of in the wake of the financial crisis. So that sort of also kept me at that job, um, I thought it was a little bit uh, risky to start something as a happiness research institute. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a there was a guy uh, at the office I, I I worked at who was my mentor and who I really looked up to both uh, professionally and 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 uh, personally. And he was 15 years older than me, and I thought I want to be him in in 15 years. Uh, great colleague, great boss. Uh, he was a great um, uh, dad to his kids and, and had a, a loving marriage. And um, unfortunately, he got very ill and uh, and died uh, shortly uh, after he was diagnosed with cancer. And he died when he was 49. And many years ago, my own mother also died when she was 49. So naturally, I just started to sort of reflect on, you know, what do we spend our years doing? What if I only live to see 49? What will I spend my, you know, then 15 years I have left doing? And I think that sort of sense of one's own mortality um, was the push that said, you know, I can spend another seven or 15 years working for this company, which is fine, but I'm not really passionate about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I can try and create this happiness research institute, which I just find tremendously interesting um, as, as a career. Uh, and, and after that thought occurred to me, I, I essentially just quit and started out with what I thought was a good idea and a bad laptop. And uh, I, I can say already now, that is going to be the best decision that, that I'm going to make in my career. So how did you get started with that idea in your mind? Oh, so the first uh, project I did was actually to look at that question that had set it off, you know, why does Denmark often do well in uh, happiness rankings and spoke to 
all the different uh, international happiness researchers that uh, were there at the time and looked at the data, looked at the studies and, and created a report uh, around uh, that subject. And I mean, it took a couple of years to get the company going. Uh, in the beginning, it was, I mean, less of a business and more like a really expensive hobby. Mm. There was a time where I had to spend um, three months living on my friend's couch uh, together mm -hmm. with his two cats. I think also in the book, I, I refer to that as the period of, um, of living the dream. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but nevertheless, I think it was, it, it, was, it was good to know that even though I wasn't making any money at the time, this was still what I wanted to do. Um, this was still what I wanted to explore. This was still what I wanted to dedicate my career to. Hmm. And, and, and fortunately now, in, in that sense, uh, time have, uh, times have changed. We are, we are 10 people um, working uh, in the think tank uh, today uh, at the Happiness Research Institute and doing projects across um, mainly Europe, but, but, but globally. Uh, and it's going, it's going really well. And we have a lot of, of clients, fortunately, coming to us. Uh, which is a, a really fortunate and privileged uh, position to be in. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's, it was good to have that sort of sobering period in the beginning where you, you needed to want to work with this field uh, to do it. You wouldn't do it for financial reasons. Right, 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 right. Uh, if I think of happiness, I think most of us have some sort of inkling uh, in happiness talked about, at least in general terms, about like I know the things that make me happy in the short term, but it's another thing to figure out how to sustain that sort of feeling. Uh, there's a line in your book right. that I think of. Uh, and you write about, I'll probably paraphrase a little bit, but long-term happiness uh, can depend on your ability to form a positive narrative of your life. Uh, mm. Can you talk a little bit about that, that distinction between the temporary uh, momentary happiness versus that ability to form a, a positive narrative? Yeah, so, so when we measure happiness, um, and when I say we, I mean happiness researchers in, in, in general, um, we, we look at different dimensions of happiness because, I mean, you have one perception of happiness, I have another one, uh, and we need to break it down and look at different components. Um, and it's also what we do when we look at other complex uh, phenomenons. If, if we talked about the Canadian economy, we would also break that down into growth, GDP, unemployment rate, inflation, and so on. And that gives us a language to talk about how is the Canadian economy doing. So that's also what we do with happiness, well-being, quality of life. So we look at the short term. We look at what kind of emotions, what kind of mood do we experience on a daily basis uh, at a specific point in time. So we could ask you about yesterday, about what kind of emotions you experienced then, you know, did you feel happy? Did you feel loved? Did you feel inspired? Um, but also negative ones. I mean, did you feel lonely? Did you feel stressed? Did you feel angry? And so on and so on. That's one dimension uh, of the good life or, or happiness or the, the domain we try to explore. A different uh, dimension is sort of an overall life satisfaction. So when we take a step back and evaluate our lives, are we satisfied with what we see? Do we feel we overall have a good life? Are we happy overall? And you can ask questions like, 
imagine the worst possible life you could live and the best possible life you could live on a scale from zero to 10, where do you feel you stand right now? That is actually the question that is usually uh, going into the world happiness report. So the one that often puts uh, Canada as well as Denmark in the top 10. Uh, it's also a very stable question uh, because you would probably answer that question the same way today as you did a couple of weeks ago. Whereas the first dimension we talked about, the, um, the mood, the emotions you experience on a daily basis, that is much more volatile. So there mm -hmm. we can see, for example, there is a weekend effect. Uh, people are happier on Fridays and, and Saturdays than they are on Mondays and Tuesdays. So you can uh, thank uh, big data for that nugget of wisdom. <laughs> um, and of course, those two dimensions are also linked because if you have an everyday uh, with a lot of positive emotions and, and few negative ones, you, you're probably also more satisfied with life overall. But you can, you can have you know, a lousy morning and, and still feel good about uh, life overall. So they're not uh, completely overlapping. So right. those, those are two of the dimensions. And the last dimension that, that we often capture is, is going back to what we talked about earlier with, uh, about Aristotle and his perception of, of happiness. So there we look at whether people have a sense of, of meaning and purpose in life. Right, so right, right. We, we break happiness down, look at different components. Uh, and to me, happiness is a, is a dish with many ingredients. I think the good life is about connection. It's about purpose. It's also about pleasure. It's about, you know, enjoying a nice meal, a good glass of wine together with your, your loved ones. It's also having good friends. It's having a sense of purpose. It's enjoying what you do uh, on a, on a nine to five uh, routine. Um, so, so I like to expand uh, the concept uh, of happiness to, in to include uh, all those elements. As you're uh, starting this research institute and you're going through that, uh, the living the dream phase, you're on the couch with the cats, <laughs> uh, what was your first maybe breakthrough where you started to get some results in, in your research? You started to find something that felt like you could latch onto that um, and carry that momentum forward? Oh, I think... I think there are several things, and I think there was also a rising global tide that that lifted me up and the work that I was doing. Because in the seven years it's been now since I established the Happiness Research Institute, we are seeing more and more organisations, governments, policymakers, academics looking at this. We are seeing, I think, a, a growing global awareness that we have become richer without necessarily becoming happier and we need a new measure of progress. We've seen increasing sort of legitimacy around happiness research as a field and those trends have also um, helped us in, in the work that we, uh, we've done. Um, I think it's difficult to, to sort of pinpoint any project or any result that catapulted the business into the next level. I think there were a lot of different elements or developments happening at once. Mm -hmm. We did at one point a uh, experiment around uh, Facebook and how this was 2015 and how Facebook sort of can impact negatively your satisfaction with life because it's a constant a channel of you know bombardment of great news that happens for everybody else that can create a stronger contrast to how you feel about your life. Now we we, we did that study and that exploded globally in terms of 
media attention. So uh, we probably did 70 or 80 interviews in 48 hours. And of course, that created a lot of awareness about the, the work that we do in general. Mm-hmm. Um, later, within the next year, I did um, a TED Talk, which of course also is good for awareness. Um, I published a couple of books uh, one of them uh, became a, a global bestseller and was translated to 38 languages. Um, so there were a lot of different things that were happening um, at the same time. So, so it's difficult to, to pinpoint one. I was able to grow the organization also with, with some really, really bright, uh, dedicated um, people. Uh, and of course, not just being an army of one is, is, is really uh, the way to sort of cement um an organization and, and that was also happening at that same time 38 languages was that for the the little book of hugo or which one was was that yes yeah yes exactly what, what was the most unexpected uh, translation to see oh, um i don't know maybe mongolian yeah. or uh, some of the really small languages like um Latvian or something like that. So, so I've been to Latvia a couple of times. I think there's 700,000 people in Latvia. So that's an extremely small uh, language. Um, I'm not sure how many people speak uh, Mongolian, but I mean, that was incredible. Yeah, yeah. I also wanted to put out, point out that the same year I published a book in Danish, which was a much more sort of uh, academic book. Um, and um, uh, looking at sort of how to measure happiness and how different governments are using happiness as a new measure. And that was published in Danish and they printed 2,000 copies. Mm-hmm. Um, long story short, I, it sold 500 copies and I now have 1,500 copies lying at home in my basement. <laughs> um, so it was interesting. The same year I published two books. Uh, one sold, I think, uh, one or 1.5 million copies. The other one sold 500. Yeah. So, um, so, and they're all those, those books are all bright yellow. Uh, so I, I call it my, uh, my yellow mountain of shame. So, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's interesting. I think this is nice to know for, for other, uh, authors that, you know, sometimes you're not in control of what happens to books. Uh, I think they're both really good books. Uh, for some reason, one of them just went, global and the other one went to my basement basically <laughs> uh, so speaking of books you've written this book the art of making memories what did you set out to do with this one um i set out to mitigate a midlife crisis <laughs> <laughs> no so so the, the the reason why i wrote the book was i i guess twofold so First of all, there, there is an academic interest in happy memories because we can see that, as you mentioned earlier, our ability to form a positive narrative about our lives impact uh, how we feel about life right now. And we can see when people are living with depression, um, they're not only struggling with not feeling, feeling happy right now, but they actually also struggle with remembering any time in the past they were happy at all. Mm-hmm. So, so there is a... There is an, an academic interest. And then there was the, the second reason was sort of a, a personal one, because um, up to, to writing the book, I turned 40. 
And that means statistically speaking, uh, because men in Denmark live to we are on average 80, that I had lived half my life. Uh-huh. So I just started to think back and think of which, you know, which were actually my happiest moments in the past and which are my happiest memories and how can I use that knowledge going forward? How can I create happy moments in the future? How can I you know, take more control and create situ- situations that I'm likely uh, to remember as happy ones in the future? So that there was an academic interest and there was a a sort of midlife uh, point uh, that that led me to become more interested in our in our memories, uh, and I'm really glad I ventured into this because I think it's a tremendously interesting field um, that actually impact um, not just satisfaction with life but also a lot of our, our behavior. Uh, so it's been really fun to dive into. So instead of buying a sports car, you wrote a book for the midlife crisis. Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, it's it's it's. <laughs> I thought it was easier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as as you were writing this book and and researching, I mean, there's so much research involved in in any uh, project like this. Mm. What surprised you as you're looking at the relationships between memory and happiness? Um, I think I think the biggest surprise or the biggest aha moment was understanding that we are sort of memory architects. And what I mean by that is, I think earlier I looked at memory as something random, as something I did not have a control over, that some things I remembered and some things I didn't, and that was just coincidence. And now I see that I can actually influence what I and my family and friends remember. And I think that's a really nice empowerment to have and to feel uh, and sort of use that technique or those techniques and that, and that strategy in taking an active part in creating uh, happy memories. And it can be, I mean, of course in the book, we look at a lot of different sort of strategies and tools, but, uh, but I think there's a really simple tool also just in terms of attention. And um, a couple of, of months ago, I spoke to a, a Polish woman who had read the book and she told me that she was reminded of a time when she was about seven or eight and she was having dinner with her mother and her sister and they're having a good time. They're laughing, they're, they're feeling happy. And then her mother turns to her and, and her sister and says, I hope you remember this moment. And here we are, it's, it's 30 years later. She still remembers that moment because her mother made her pay attention mm. to it. Mm. And I think that that shows how little it actually takes to impact what people remember. And of course, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful tool that can also be overused because if you every time you sit down with your friends, say, I hope you remember this moment, uh, hopefully they are going to tell you to shut up after you know, three or four times. Um, <laughs> but you know, used, used every once in a while, I, I, it's, I think it's, it's a tremendously interesting tool, uh, the power of attention in, in that sense. Hmm. One of the things that I found quite interesting in reading your book is how we can use the power of our senses to purposely link memories later on. If you were to, again, not overuse certain things, but say connect yeah. a particular smell or, or taste or sound to, to memory. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, a memory works through association. So you see something or you know, you hear that song you used to love in high school, and then you're you're sort of instantly reminded of 
a moment from that period in your life. So it works through association. And that means that you can use all your five different senses to um, to build in memory triggers when you hear something or smell something or, or taste something. Um, and somebody that, that, for example, used to do that with the, the sense of smell or scent uh, was Andy Warhol. Um, so what he would do was he would wear a perfume for three months and then never wear that perfume again and then switch to another one for three months and so on and so on. So that meant over time he had actually created a, he called it a museum of scent or museum of memories. So he could say, okay, now I want to travel back to the spring of 1978 and then take a whiff of that perfume and then see which memories would actually come off uh, because of that uh, scent. Mm -hmm. So, so building in a taste or sound or, um, you know, uh, scent uh, into memories can be one of the ways we can actively trigger something in the future. All of the focus on happiness that we do, it reminds me, it brings me back to something you mentioned earlier that, you know, countries, despite some countries, many countries getting wealthier, uh, we are not necessarily getting happier. Is, is there a downside to uh, becoming perhaps too preoccupied with finding happiness? Can we spend too much time trying to seek it that it becomes counterproductive? Yeah, I think, I think there is a risk in that sense. And, and what we try to advise uh, at the Happiness Research Institute is, is see whether we can turn the, the pursuit of happiness into the happiness of pursuit. So seeing happiness as a byproduct of something else, um, uh, happiness as a byproduct of you know, creating connection with other people, happiness as a byproduct of being passionate about a hobby, or you know, building a boat, or um, you know, going hiking with your friends, or um, not having happiness as the end goal and as the thing we're trying to grab, uh, but actually trying to sort of perhaps focus on 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 what we know are the drivers of happiness and sort of the stimulants of happiness, like friendship, like a sense of purpose, um, and and then allow happiness to become a byproduct of, of that. Uh, I like that. The the happiness of pursuit, that's what you called it? Right, yes. Yeah. If you were to boil it down to one thing or, or at most three things, what changes or priorities or habits do you feel have made the most tangible difference in your overall happiness? I think it is, first of all, recognizing the importance of relationships in happiness. So, so one of the most consistent patterns we see in the data, whether we look at local, national, or, or global data, is how important our relationships are, not just you know, with our, with our uh, wife or, or husband and spouse or whatever, but also with, with our friends and sort of the connections we have. So, so I know it's it's banal and it's a cliche, but it, it it is I think really important to underline the importance of that as a happiness researcher. Um, so I I try to prioritize my friendships and my connections more than I used to. Um, simple things uh, like um, 
I every year have the New Year's resolution that once a month I want to invite people over for my friends over for a dinner. Now every year I fail <laughs> that New Year's resolution, but I still invite them over more than if I had not had that resolution.、Mm. So I think it's fine to have goals because you know you work towards them, and 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 and、um, even though you may not accomplish、uh, them fully, it, it, you still change behavior.、Um, Secondly, I think happiness research has also given me that sense of purpose with life that I was perhaps lacking seven or ten years ago.、Um, building an organization that I think is tremendously important in how we shape our societies and how we shape our workplaces and policies,、uh, and working with some really lovely, bright people gives me a great sense of, of purpose and joy.、Um, so I think just the work in itself. Have had a positive impact on my happiness and changes to my behavior, and then I think thirdly, I have embraced what what we talked about earlier—that sort of you know、uh, turning pursuit of happiness into happiness of pursuit. That I know that there is no one accomplishment I can achieve that will make me forever happy. You know,、mm. whenever I reach a goal, I'm gonna be happy with that for a while, and then I'm gonna set a new goal. So we are. Really good as humans to continuously raise the bar for what we feel we need in order to be happy,、um, and that means, for example, in in practice right now we are building a, a small museum here in Copenhagen,、uh, the Happiness Museum, and of course that's going to be a fun once it opens, and that's going to be a, an accomplishment and a milestone. But I'm also acutely aware that the process leading to that opening should also be something I enjoy, and I know that. It's the late nights where I'm sharing a glass of wine with my dad, where we look at the sort of blueprints for the rooms at the museum. How we're going to design the exhibition? That that's the fun about the whole thing. You know, it's it's that 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 is the value that gives me that enjoyment of building something,、uh, and it, it's that that is the the prize, not the museum once it's there and done. So again, it's it's the building the boat. It's the it's 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 the old cliche of of the journey, not the destination. That that I try to practice in that sense.、Hmm. This might be a fall along similar lines, but one final question for you: If we're thinking about our future, what is our best hope to make sure the future is a happier one? Of course, that depends on the individual and, and the situation they are in.、Um, I think honestly, it it is a really good exercise to write down, could be on a daily or weekly or monthly basis, which were actually the things I enjoyed doing today or this week or or this month, especially things that are inexpensive.、Um, what what I found in 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 the past few years is, you know, the things I enjoy doing most during my week are, you know. Eating a lovely dinner with my girlfriend. I enjoy cooking.、Um, I like playing tennis once a week in the summertime. I do it several times a week with one of my oldest friends.、Um, I like going on long walks.、Uh, we have a, a small cabin on an island in the Baltic Sea. We, we often go there for 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 walks.、Um, I try to do more of those things、um, as as the years go by, but. That's what matters to me, and that what gives me 
pleasure and purpose and happiness. It might be different for, for other people, but I think pay attention to to where you find happiness and then try to, to replicate that uh, more frequently. Hmm. Mike, thank you so much for, for taking the time today. It was great speaking with you. Likewise, Martin. Thanks for having me. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and review, and most of all, tell someone else you think might like it. If you really like the show, head to the shop section on the Story Untold website. There's merch there. It looks great. It helps to keep the show running. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.